0: Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. My guest today is William Freeman. Uh, He's a population geneticist at 23andMe. Will, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. So, Will, uh, how does one become a population geneticist at 23andMe? Maybe you could talk a a little bit about your career path.
1: Sure. Uh, So I was a software engineer uh, many years ago. Um, working mostly on web application development, um, but always kind of interested in biodiversity, interested in uh, backpacking, conservation work. Um, And doing that volunteer work got me really interested in um, sort of the diversity of uh, natural populations and understanding their evolutionary history. Um, And so as I started to learn more about phylogenetics and coalescent theory, um, I Got extremely excited by those ideas and uh, decided to pursue a PhD at UC Berkeley um, where I worked on computational phylogenetics um, and then did a a postdoc and uh, then um, moved to 23andMe as a population geneticist where um, I get to basically do a lot of what I really like to do, which is develop computational methods um, to make inferences about population histories um, and stuff like that.
0: So uh, today we will be talking about your, I believe, most recent work on inferring identity by descent. Were there any other cool projects that you can tell us about at 23andMe?
1: Yeah. So this is my primary project at 23andMe. I'm also working then on like other algorithms for phasing um, and then lots of applications with IBD. So, for example, um, what can we do once we've identified IBD segments? um, How can we model, for example, um, the time of most common recent ancestor between shared amongst multiple individuals and other demographic inferences that we can do kind of the downstream
0: applications of IBD inference? Okay, so maybe this is a good time to introduce what, what IBD, what identity by descent is.
1: Yeah, so uh IBD, identical by descent. These are these um regions of the genome that are identical uh, amongst individuals because they share a common ancestor um and you know those regions have been um you know not broken up by meiotic recombination. And so we expect that um people who are more distantly related since these segments are broken up by recombination people who are more distantly related um, we'll have shorter IBD segments. People more closely related will have very long IBD segments. And so estimating those IBD segments, their genomic location and the length are really, is really crucial to what we do at 23andMe, where we want to identify, you know, not only who you're related to, but also make inferences about um, your genetic ancestry, right? So uh, certain populations will be highly enriched for certain haplotypes, Um, If we can say that you are IBD with individuals who have a certain haplotype that, again, is um, found very commonly within a certain population, then we can potentially say that you have uh, genetic ancestry in that population.
0: A related term is IBS, identity by state. Can you explain what that is and how they are related? Yeah.
1: So identical by state, that's just, you know, you have a string of alleles and that's where every single allele obviously is like identical just because they're the same allele. They're not necessarily identical because they're shared from a common ancestor, because they were inherited from a common ancestor. Um, and so there are a lot of different ways to, uh, to kind of define um, identical by descent. Um, some use a notion of how much time in the past had to have been shared um you had to have a common ancestor within um the way that we typically are using the term here is just that it's such you have such a long segment genomic segment of IBS that it's incredibly unlikely that that segment would have arisen purely by
0: chance and so uh, correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is when you're talking about these long segments the relationship between IBD and IBS almost reverses because when when we talk about uh, single loci, we say that to be IBD, you have to be IBS, right? If if two nucleotides are different, you, you can't even talk about them being identity by descent. So you um, have IBS, and some of those IBS, some, some of those that are identical by state are also identical by descent. So they're not randomly happen to be the same alleles, but they are the same alleles because they are descendants of the of the same um, ancestor, but one and and so we have IBD as is a subset of IBS. But in when when dealing with these long segments, IBS is maybe a, too strict a criterion, and so you you expand it to to be IBD.
1: So right, I I would almost say so a. uh, an IBD segment can contain mismatches that actually have arisen, like a mutation, um, you know, that has arisen. And so the the two IBD segments may not be truly IBS. Um, And if you really think about it, though, every single site in the genome, if we looked at just that site, they're all IBD amongst all humans, right? Um, Because those sites, you know, Obviously, we share them all from a common ancestor. And I think really a criteria for defining what IBD is takes into account just where recombination has broken up those segments. And so if you share that entire chunk of the genome, whether that's a single site or, you know, uh, a million sites, um, has that chunk of the genome been broken up by recombination or do we share it identically?
0: If I go to my 23andMe account, which I I haven't visited in a while, which parts will I I be able to see, like, are affected by by your work or by IBD calculations?
1: Yeah, so IBD is used widely. Basically, if you look at the ancestry side of the 23andMe product, um, where, you know, ancestry composition or your DNA relatives, or we also do, like, family tree inference, um, much of that is driven by IBD. Um, so when you look at your ancestry composition, you know, it says, oh, you have X percentage of your genome is Eastern European. And then for me, I have these very specific hits to regions in Slovakia, for example. And that's driven because I share IBD with individuals in Slovakia. And so, you know, then we can do things like look at the length of those segments, to say, well, how long ago potentially did you have a uh, a common ancestor or a, a, an ancestor in Slovakia, right? Potentially,
0: right. Interesting. Yeah. So I I did have something like that. I, th- I think I had like a very small percentage, like under one percent uh, from from Italy or something. And and so you're saying that's because I have an IBD or my my genotype wasn't fair to have some IBD with like people from Italy.
1: Well, so it depends on exactly which part of the product was reporting it. So there's the, like the chromosome paintings, which are done through a different approach through, um, a uh, machine learning approach where we use uh, support vector machines and then an HMM that basically paints the proportion of your genome from each ancestry. Um, however, that's kind of a re- relatively large scale genetic ancestry. You know, it'll say the proportion of your genome that's, you know, from uh, Scandinavia or, um, you know, from. Uh, Sub-Sahara African. Um, But then the more specific hits that are kind of getting into sub-country levels, which you kind of have to click into, but you'll see maybe, and I'm not sure, your Italian hits, maybe it tells you like specific counties in Italy. Or my wife, for example... um, her family's from Afghanistan, and it shows like very clearly specific regions within Afghanistan that she has genetic ancestry and so it's those kind of really high resolution hits that IBD can provide
0: Maybe also a related notion that we can talk about is in comparative genomics when you look at different genomes and you align them. You do, for example, multiple sequence alignments and you look at these uh, aligned region. You sometimes say they're homologous, right? Um, so w- we are talking about a very similar thing here, but maybe within the species? Absolutely, yes. And uh, what what is the challenge compared to Uh, for example, inferring homology compared to multiple sequence alignment?
1: Yeah, so typically the alignment is trivial in this case, right? I mean, we have, you know, half a million SNPs from millions of people um, and the alignment itself is obvious, right? I mean, so we'll we'll have a very large alignment of haplotypes. Um, The challenge becomes estimating uh, the basically the substrings within that alignment that are perfectly identical or identical um, within some margin of error. The other big issue becomes that there are are two types of errors that kind of fragment IBD segments, and that's uh, genotyping errors, um, so places where just the alleles that were called in an individual's haplotypes are wrong due to um, the genotyping process, or uh, phase switch errors. And this is a, a major challenge to IBD inference. Um, so the, uh, the alignment might be correct, but um, if there's been a phase switch error, so basically, of course, every individual has a maternal and a paternal uh, copy of each chromosome. So two haplotypes. Um, and uh, during statistical phasing, you often get these errors where basically the alleles that should have been on the maternal haplotype are swapped and put onto the paternal haplotype. And if you can imagine a very long IBD segment stretching along one haplotype, if there have been phase switch errors, that now fragments that long segment. And so we need errors. We need a IBD method that's robust to those specific types of error.
0: And let's explain, by the way, what, what is phasing and how is it done? Yeah, so that's when we genotype an
1: individual, you know, um, an individual who's heterozygous at a certain site. Maybe they have an A and a T at the site. We need to try to figure out, did the A come from the maternal side and the T from the paternal side or vice versa? And so that process is phasing. Um, and so what we're using here in this IBD detection algorithm is um, haplotypes that have already been phased. So we, we've already taken the original genotype data or the sequencing data or whatever we have, we've uh, already phased them, uh, and now we want to detect IBD. We want to find the matching substrings within this, but kind of be sensitive to the fact that there probably are phase switch errors within the data.
0: And just to clarify, uh, when when you're dealing with data, for example, at 23andMe, you don't literally know which one is maternal, which one is paternal, but it's all relative to other alleles, right? You're trying to group the alleles that are on the same um, chromosome. We try to groom them together.
1: So uh, usually, yes, but um, there is an increasingly large portion of our database in which we do have many relatives. Um, and so we can actually, um, verily, uh, with pretty high accuracy, assign maternal and paternal side. And that, that's something we're actually looking And we're looking to leverage even more and more distant relatives to uh, uh, basically, even if you don't have your own parents genotyped, but if you have an, an uncle or an aunt, and we can try to estimate whether these two relatives are on the same side, you know, whether they're both maternal, both paternal, or one's maternal and one's paternal, um, then we can try to use that, uh, we can leverage that information to phase portions of your genome with higher accuracy than than other parts.
0: And uh, the method that you published a, a preprint on um, that we will be talking about later today uh, is called the... Um templated positional Burr's-Wheeler transform, but before we get to, to all these Burr's-Wheeler transforms, um, can you talk about what alternative approaches exist to uh, to inferring identity by descent and maybe what 23andMe was, was using before your work?
1: Yeah, so um, there was a 2012 paper, Hennedal, in which we described a method, which is what we're widely using with our customer data, um, which is an unfazed uh, approach. So it uses just the genotype data. Um, And um, this was also kind of independently developed just recently. Um, I think the paper just came out earlier this year, um, a method called IBIS, I-B-I-S, which is essentially the same algorithm. Um, And this, what it does is it basically looks across, so we're comparing Two individuals, their their genotypes, and it looks for opposite homozygous regions. So, um, one individual might be homozygous for allele zero, the other individual might be homozygous for allele one, and we're looking for very long stretches in between those opposite homozygous sites. If that region's long enough, then we can assume that they're uh, IBD on at least one of their haplotypes in between that. so this, this method is totally robust to phase switch errors because it uses unphased error, uh, unphased data, which is fantastic. But the problem with it uh, or the limitation with it is that you can really only estimate very long IBD segments. Um, and that's because uh, in between these opposite homozygous regions, you can actually have short regions that do occur just by pure chance. Um, and so you'll get a very high false positive rate. Um, and so at 23 me, we're really interested in um, detecting IBD for your very distant relatives that says a lot about your kind of ans- your genetic ancestry far in the past. Um, and so we'd like to get much shorter IBD methods, uh, or much shorter IBD segments. And so that kind of motivated the development of a phased approach, which is what we're currently using.
0: And when when dealing with unfazed data, what does it even mean to be IBD? So are you looking like for for example, to say that you and I are IBD somewhere? Does it mean that both our uh, chromosomes are IBD in that region? So there's the notion of being IBD-1 and IBD-2. IBD-1
1: is where, or half IBD, um, sometimes it's referred to in the literature. It's where you're IBD on just um, one of your haplotypes with the other person. Um, IBD-2 is where both of your haplotypes are IBD with the other person. And knowing the proportion of the genome that is IBD1 versus IBD2 is very informative for demographic inference. It's really informative for estimating relatedness. For example, siblings will have a lot of IBD2, um, whereas most other relationships will not have IBD2.
0: So I guess there are two parts to inferring IBD. One is purely computational. How do you efficiently find these regions that are uh, similar between um, two or, or several haplotypes, um, but also then there is, I guess, more statistical issue of where you put that threshold, where when you actually call something IBD and not just randomly uh, coinciding. Uh, so, I think your your paper mainly deals with the, with the first uh, issue, and. Um, There, you use something called the burrs wheeler transform. So maybe let's talk about the Burroughs-Wheeler transform. Where where does it come from and uh, how we can leverage it?
1: Yeah, so uh, Burroughs-Wheeler transform was first described by um, these two engineers, Burroughs and Wheeler, back in uh, 1994. Um, And the basic idea um, was that it was a compression algorithm. So if if you've ever used BZIP, that's like um common compression method that uses the burrow wheelers transform the idea is you have a very long string and you want to compress it and so this transforms that string you basically rotate the string a number of times taking like the the first uh the, the first character move it to the end and rotate it and then you uh, lexicographically sort all of those rotated versions of the string once you've transformed the string in that way, you can do like run length encoding on that string because um, due to like the way that uh, strings are going to be uh, context specific, you're going to have a lot of repetitions. You can imagine the word the um, basically many times in the English language when you see the, the letter T, it's going to be followed by H-E. Right. There's a context there that informs that. And so uh, when you've done this transform, it's going to place all of the H. You know, every time you see a T, you're going to get that H. E. They're going to get sorted together. And so then you have a long run of H. E's. So then you can uh, run length encode them. You can say we've seen that H. E 10 times and so you can compress the data in that way. And it's a lossless compression so that you can easily reverse this transform and get your data back.
0: To clarify, the, the transform itself is taking the last letter of, of each cyclic, uh, of, of each rotation, right? So when, when, yes. you, when you rotate uh, the strings such that HE is in the beginning, then the T that preceded uh, H-E will be at the end. And that's the, the sequence of the last letters of these shifts that we take as the burrows transform.
1: Yes. And when you're, when you're actually constructing this, of course, you don't need to hold in memory all of these um, uh, reshuffled versions of your original string. So there are very fast ways to construct that and memory-efficient ways. Um, but so this gives you a nice compressed version of your data. The next thing, though, you want to do is be able to query the data quickly. Um, and so, kind of shortly after the BWT was first described, um, at the FM index um, was um, described, I, I don't remember, a handful of years after that. And this basically gives you a quick way to query um, um, Burrow-Wheeler's transformed piece of text, and find, um, any, find the location and number of substrings within that compressed data. Okay. Um, and this, as you can imagine, is a really useful combination. Um, and so in, um, what was it? In 2009, Leon Durbin um, described like the Burrow-Wheeler's aligner, um, which is really commonly used where you want to map short uh, sequence reads to a reference genome. And The Burrow-Wheeler's transform and the FM index are perfectly suited to this task. Um, So you can imagine you can transform your uh, reference genome in a compressed format, and then you only have to hold the compressed form of that in memory, um, and then uh, very quickly look up the location of each read or matches um, see where it matches into your reference genome. And it gives you a very quick and uh, efficient way to map those reads to the reference genome. Um, so uh, the Burrow-Wheelers transform became, I think, really widely used in bioinformatics. This then led uh, Richard Durbin a few years after that. Um, in 2014, he published a paper uh, where he introduced this idea of the positional Burrow-Wheelers transform. Um, and the idea now is that instead of just compressing a single string, like a reference genome, now we have an alignment of strings. Okay, they're all the same length. So in our case, we were talking about like aligning a set of haplotypes. Uh, we can consider a big block, a big alignment of these haplotypes. And what we now want to do is not only compress them, but also find all of the uh, matching uh, subsequences within that. Um, and so, what what Durbin did it's a very clever algorithm. Uh, you're basically scanning through this haplotype alignment from left to right, or right to left. It doesn't matter. Um, but at each position, what you're going to do is reorder the haplotypes according to their prefix, just lexicographically. Okay. And as you move to the next position, you're simply going to update the ordering that you had in the last position. And what this very naturally does is that it um, it makes the most similar haplotypes, the haplotypes with the longest matching subsequences, adjacent to one another within that ordering. And so it basically in linear time, you're able to identify all the matching subsequences um, within a haplotype alignment.
0: Yeah. So uh, maybe to explain it in, in a bit more detail, basically, if you have a uh, long match between some of the haplotypes, if you cut them at the beginning of that match so that, that the match is at the beginning of these cut strings, right? And then you sort these cut cut strings, then uh, the ones that have the match there, they will be adjacent, right, in the sort. Exactly. And then you have to do that for every single position, right? which sounds like it would be inefficient. And my understanding is that the, the positional burst wheeler transform makes that operation efficient, that you don't have to do a new sort at every starting position, but it, it allows you to transform the the sorted strings starting from the position 30 to a set of sorted strings starting at the position 31, for example.
1: Right. You're just updating the, the, you know, you've already sorted the strings at position 30. Then when you move to position 31, you're just going to update that the existing sorting. And you can do that very fast. So let's say you have biallelic, just to keep it simple, biallelic sites. So they they're going to either have a 0 or a 1 um and you're basically going to keep a array of all the haplotypes that start with 0 and all the haplotypes that start with 1 so you scan if we're at site 30 we're going to we already have them ordered at site 30 all the haplotypes we're going to scan through the ordering at site 30 and look at what their allele is at site 31 if they have a 0 we add them to our zero array if they have a 1 we add them to our one array okay once we've done that, so now we have all of the uh, uh, the haplotypes that end with a zero at site 31 ordered, all the haplotypes that end with site one ordered um, in two separate arrays, and then we just concatenate those two arrays, right? Because all the haplotypes that have a zero at site 31 will proceed in our ordering all the haplotypes that end with a one at site 31.
0: So, so far we talked about identity by descent in general but when you designed your algorithm what specific problem do you have in mind is it for any two haplotype to find those ibd regions or is it to uh find you know pairs of haplotypes that have the long longest or long enough ibd regions like how do you formulate that algorithm problem
1: well, it, it depends on the exact application. Um, so sometimes we do want to identify just the longest matching haplotype for some applications. Um, but kind of think about your most typical use case where you just take a population, um, a cohort of samples, and you want to identify all of the IBD segments shared amongst that Cohort, right? Um, For example, maybe you're trying to identify population structure within it. And so you want to look for clusters of shared haplotypes. Um, And so in that case, we're just looking for all matching subsequences that are of a certain length. And by matching, we mean kind of a fuzzy matching, because again, we have to allow for both genotyping and phase switch errors that may have fragmented some of those long matching haplotypes.
0: Now, there are two issues that you described, right? The errors that may be in the data, uh, which are uh, phasing errors and uh, genotyping errors. And so in your work, you suggest some ways to to cope with those uh, problems.
1: Yeah, so um, we deal with, with both of these types of errors. Um, through the use of an extension of the PBWT, which we're calling the, the templated positional Borough-Wheeler's transform. Um, and the idea here is we've uh, basically added kind of a an extra dimension to these arrays that are necessary within the PBWT. So the two primary arrays you need to keep track of are a what Durbin calls a positional prefix array, um, which again, at each position, it keeps track of the order of all of the um, of the haplotypes, the, the sorting of them at each position. Um, and then you also keep track of a divergence array, which basically tells you when did when was the where was the last position in which the um, a haplotype in uh, its position a haplotype within the positional prefix array, when did it um, last not match with the haplotype that precedes it in the positional prefix array?
0: So these are analogous to some things that may be familiar from the ordinary BWT or suffix arrays, right? And so the, the first one is just the analog of the suffix array itself, I believe. Yep. And, and the second one is the analog of the uh, longest common prefix array.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not sure what the, the second one is analogous to, but certainly the first is analogous to the, yeah, um, to a suffix array. Um, but yeah, so uh, what we now do is make those uh, one-dimensional arrays, two-dimensional arrays. Um, we basically use uh, a pattern of templates um, that'll mask out errors in different patterns. Um, so you can imagine you could have your haplotype alignment. You could mask out all the odd sites, right? Um, and you could mask out all the even sites. And then if you have a genotyping error at, in one of the odd sites, you know the the masked out version that's just looking at the even sites will find a match that extends through that error, right? Um, and so we basically want to update, have a copy of the positional prefix array, a copy of the divergence array for each one of those
0: different templates. When you sort these um, substrings, you you sort not just the substring, not just the suffixes or prefixes that start or end at a certain position. But uh, in addition, you apply this template. So maybe you you sort the strings that are obtained by cutting off a part of the string, but also then the, the remainder, you keep every other position or something.
1: Right. So instead of sorting the full strings like we were doing in the original PBWT, we're now sorting masked versions of those strings. And basically, um, kind of the arrangement of those templates determines how sensitive to genotyping error or short phase switch errors um, the algorithm can be. Because we can identify now matching subsequences that extend through um, these errors. Um, So we additionally, on top of this, now need, because you can imagine that you'll basically now get multiple different versions of your IBD segments, depending on how the errors are masked out. And kind of a naive thing to do would be to just output all of those IBD segments and then use some kind of post ad hoc method to merge them. So lots of times, you'll have overlapping IBD segments um, from these different templates um, that have been fragmented in different ways by the errors um, that were present in those in the specific sites that each template visited um, And so instead of doing some kind of ad hoc merging algorithm, uh, what we instead do is keep track of segments as they're discovered as we're sweeping through the original data um, a start and an end position for each segment and as it's identified by a single um, template, if there is another, IBD segment that's uh, found with a, a second template, if it overlaps the first one, then these fragments of IBD are now merged together and we, get, we end up with an algorithm that produces these kind of long IBD segments that have been extended through error.
0: But you merge only the overlapping segments, not, not just the segments that are close by.
1: Well, we do merge segments that are close by. So that, that's a option that a, u, the user can set with the algorithm is if they want to allow for some short distance in between segments.
0: So, so you mentioned this deals with the short face switching errors. What, what about the Longer switching errors, the phase switching errors.
1: Yeah, so um so there are you know phase switch errors that are basically we we often call them like blip phase switch errors that are just one site or two sites long, um, and then they switch back. And you can imagine that would fragment an IBD segment and using this templating, depending on the arrange, arrangement of templates you have, you can actually extend matches right through there, just like a genotyping error. Um, but for lawn, phase switch errors where you you might have a a region of the genome that's six or seven centimorgans long that's been swapped, Um, the templating's not sufficient. And so what we additionally have is a phase correction heuristic, um, which basically looks at the pattern of IBD segments as we're extending them and identifying them through the process I just talked about. And in some cases, you'll see... So if you think about the pattern of haplotype sharing within a, a large cohort of samples. Um, it's very informative for the location of phase switch errors within any given individual. Um, for example, if uh, we're looking at the, all the IBD segments, say we've got 10,000 people, and we're looking at individual A, um, and they share an IBD segment, 10 different IBD segments, with these, with random individuals in our large cohort, all of, if there is a phase switch error in individual A at a certain site, all of the IBD segments and across all the other individuals will be fragmented, will be broken up. Be on the, there will be a break onto where the segment will be on the complementary haplotype within individual A, um, but within the other individuals, a long IBD segment that remains on a, the same haplotype because the phase switch errors is only within individual A. And so that pattern, um, you can find that pattern, just it, it can occur due to recombination between parent and child, but between most pairs of related people, more distantly related people, um, to observe that pattern in nature is very unlikely. And so we can, as we're extending our IBD segments, scanning through the haplotype alignment, we can look for the that kind of pattern of haplotype sharing, when we see it, we could say, oh, there's a phase switch error in individual A. And from there on, as we continue through the TPBWT, we just swap those two haplotypes thereafter as we move through.
0: Yeah, pretty cool. I I like that. Uh, So you said at the beginning, you already get as input a set of phased haplotypes, but as and output, you not only output whatever you want, the IBD segments, but you can actually output the corrected input, right? You can go back to the people who provided you the haplotypes and say, oh, I have a better version of the data you gave me.
1: Yeah, that, that's something we've experimented with quite a bit. Um, so we're not actually outputting that in the form of the software we've made publicly available. Um, and I think that it would need a lot more tweaking to uh, to really effectively do that. But using this data structure to improve phasing is something we're really interested in. And that's almost uh, another
0: project. So the positional Burrows-Wheeler transform differs from the classical Burrows-Wheeler transform in that uh, I believe it's not a single string but it's a string. It's like a BWT for each position, right? Um, and uh, your templated positional birds with a transform has yet another dimension. So whatever number of templates you have, you multiply also by that number, which sounds like um, you know a lot of data. So how much data do you store in practice? So again, if for unindexed data, when you're just trying to do IBD
1: inference, which, again, is the most common use here, um, you're not actually copying. We don't have, you know, if you have six templates, you don't have six copies
0: of the data, right? So you're constructing all those data structures on the fly. Exactly. As you process and then you just discard them. Exactly. Um, so when we do compress the data,
1: it is definitely a hit to the level of compression compared to just using the PBWT. So the the templated positional Burrow-Wheeler wheelers transform will collapse down to the original positional Burrow-Wheeler's transform um, when we define that templating function a certain way. When you just basically say uh, the template is every single site and there's only one template, they become identical. And then the compression is just the same. But yeah, so if you use six templates, and if each one of those six templates visits half of the sites in your alignment, then basically your compression is going to be something like three times the size of if you had just compressed with the original PBWT.
0: But but you're not doing that. You're not storing
1: those, or or are you? So we are um, for certain use cases. So for example, for a out of sample compute, one of at 23 me one of uh, a very common use case, right, is we have a large database of existing customers. A new customer comes in and we want to compute their IBD against everybody else um, who's already in our database. And so we can use a compressed form of all of the existing individuals. And basically, as we add the new individual to the existing compressed form, we're also calculating the IBD um, getting all of the IBD segments that that individual shares with all of the individuals who have already been compressed.
0: And uh, at 23andMe, how sensitive are you to the performance of these algorithms? So on the one hand, you're dealing with massive amounts of data, but also no one expects you. It's not like going to Google and typing in your query and you expect an answer within like hundred milliseconds. But uh, you know, no one expects you to produce. Real-time results so you can do everything offline things may take however long they they take uh, so how much thought are you are you putting into designing these algorithms to perform really well? Uh,
1: so some of the computes are real time there's specific uses where for example maybe there's a specific reference panel and we want to run an individual against that reference panel and we do do that sometimes in real time um, and then present results. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely correct. Most of the the really large computes are done offline. However, um, the database is just growing so quickly that it becomes very expensive um, to do that. And so the, an IBD compute at a company like 23 Me, it's one of the most, if not the most expensive computes we do. Um, and so if we can make it more efficient, that's great. Um, but we also obviously need to make it very accurate because people come in and they know who they're related to. And so if we give them the wrong results, um, you know, in many cases, they will know it and they'll flag it and let us know, hey,
0: your algorithm's not working right. So, this new algorithm that you developed, uh, you published a preprint describing how it works. I believe you also published on GitHub the implementation i don't know if it's the same implementation that you're using inside 23andme or not but still what is the motivation for you personally also for the company to publish things like that
1: yeah so i mean all the our research team in 23andme it's all academics um it's a very academic atmosphere we do journal club we have a, a wonderful postdoc working with our team now um, and uh, you know we kind of move back and forth. we do a lot of academic collaborations. Um, and so I very much come from uh, the perspective of having worked on open source software before coming to twenty three me and having uh, being motivated to do open access science um, and so so much of what we do at twenty three me takes from what the academic community does um, i you know, it's only us being a good part of that broader community is kind of giving back algorithms, making them available. So both publishing, but then also when we can, making the source available so that academics can use it in their own research. Yeah, that's something that's really important to us.
0: But when when you decide to publish something like that, is it that you ask permission to publish or is it the other way around and you're encouraged to, to publish and that's like, Part of your uh, the way you're evaluated and and part of your job description.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely something we're encouraged to do. Um, I would say one of the nice things about working at Twenty Three Me is I don't feel I'm on this constant churn to publish. Which when I was a postdoc, I did feel pressure there, um, and uh, but they do encourage. So I know part of the reason I applied for a job at 23andMe is because I knew of some of the science, um, some of the pop gen work that had been done at 23andMe, some of the papers that they had published and the methods they had developed. Um, and that's part of what interested me about working at the company. And so continuing to do that, that is how we're going to attract new talent and build up new collaborations um, is by sharing what we do with the academic community.
0: Okay. I think that's more or less what I wanted to to talk to you about. Do do you have anything else that you would like to bring up? Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much, Bill.